1: Welcome to the Heart of Innovation. 60 Minutes that can save life and limb. With new breakthrough ideas and innovation changing the healthcare landscape. Brought to you by patient advocacy group, thewaytomyheart.org. In partnership with Cardiovascular System Incorporated's patient advocacy campaign, Take a Stand Against Amputation. Here are your hosts for the Heart of Innovation Emmy award winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas and Interventional Cardiologist and Founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm with Dr. John Phillips and also Nurse Practitioner Kay and Dr. Michael Danzinger from Boston Heart Diagnostics. And we are all here for a fantastic discussion talking about type 2 diabetes and how diet can reduce amputation risk. So get your questions ready, call in if you are listening live and join the discussion. Write this number down. I'll say it twice. Grab that pen, grab that phone to type it in, whatever you have. It is 18883675329. 18883675329. Welcome, everyone. I know Dr. Phillips is on call at Ohio Health in Columbus, Ohio, so he'll be popping in hopefully in just a few moments. But again, say hi to Dr. Danzinger with Boston Heart Diagnostics. Hey, doctor. Hey, Kim. Hey, everyone. And we have nurse practitioner Kay, who's here. Hi, guys. And she's with our nonprofit, The Way to My Heart. We're a Educational high touch advocacy and support group for people with peripheral artery disease. That's people who have restricted blood flow in mainly the leg arteries that can increase someone's risk for stroke, heart attack, as well as amputation. If you restrict that blood flow, you know, you, you don't have enough oxygen to heal any wounds on your feet, and that could lead to amputation. And one of the greatest risks that people have. Um, in getting peripheral artery diseases with diabetes. So we're going to talk about how, again, diabetes um, folks with that can actually reduce their risk or mitigate their risk of amputation by getting their diet under control. And Dr. Danzinger is at the forefront of helping patients with that. So we'll get to that in just a few moments. We're gonna wait for Dr. Uh, Phillips to join us as well. But in the meantime, Kay, tell us a little bit, any highlights of your week. Oh where do I start? Highlights, should I say low
3: lights? <laughs> yeah, low lights. I um I had a four hour pre operative assessment on Wednesday. For what? I'm due to have an operation next Wednesday, the thirty first, and that that operation will allow me to have chemotherapy without becoming se- septic. And it's not chemo for cancer, it's for lupus and it's for Bowen's
2: disease. Right. Inflammatory disorders.
3: Yeah. So I went along for the assessment. Um, I went through every test you can possibly imagine. ECGs. Four hours later, they said I couldn't come in as a day patient because I'm too high a risk, because I have lupus, I have macas, and I have atrial fibrillation. Well, that's a new one. You didn't know you had AF. And I had never been
2: told that I had AF. Wow. Ever. So And see, that's a big issue because... I know that when I was reading, when my mom was here, um, I was reading some of her case notes. When we would go to transfer or get a new doctor? And I couldn't believe some of the things that were in the case notes that were never discussed with us or with her about things that they had diagnosed her with. For example, with her, they had her with um, CKD, chronic kidney disease. And it was like, wait, what? When, When you never told us?
3: Yeah, I'm stage four CKD. So that's in there in the mix. Yes, I've got diabetes, it's type one. So you put the whole pot together. And the following morning, they rang me and said, we're not going to operate. We're so really,
2: A really good question for patients is to ask, hey, what are you writing in my case notes that we're not talking about right now? Number one, and then number two, please send me a copy of my case notes. Make sure that after every appointment you look for those case notes, you get a copy of them. Right, Dr. Danzinger?
4: Yeah, absolutely. It's easier than ever to really see what's on the doctor's mind because um, compared to 10 years ago, um, it's a lot easier to access your medical records online. If you can figure out how to get into the patient portal, you can read what the doctor is writing.
2: Yeah, and yeah. you can even ask them for a printout. I know some are not tech savvy and that's okay. And you can make sure you get a copy before you leave or go back and have them print it out for you.
3: Yeah, and so in the UK, they don't do that yet. You have to um, make a, a request. It takes about six to eight weeks and you'll get a, a, a printout copy if you're lucky, but you have to pay for it as well.
2: You have to pay. So you don't pay for your healthcare for the most part in the UK, except okay. if you want private, but you have to pay for your records. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. No one can see my face right now. Yeah, <laughs> It's crazy. Wow. Uh, they've, they've basically canceled my
3: operation. I've seemingly got a consultant ringing me on Monday. I have to go to main theatres. They're not willing to take the risk. Um, But I desperately need this operation so that I can have the chemo in October. So everything's sort of hanging in the balance until this consultant phones me on Monday. But what's happened to me this week is nothing compared to what's happened to you, Kim.
2: Oh, my goodness. So my dad, if anyone was tuned in the week prior in the previous episode where my dad, 80 years old, ended up falling and, you know, it happens. So people fall. It it just happens. Great. Okay. So he broke his femur or fractured his femur and his hip. Um, he ended up breaking or fracturing his elbow as well. So he was he was partially immobile, but we had gotten physical therapy and we started moving and got past some of the emergency room nightmares there. He had emergency surgery. He's, you know, pins and wires and plates, oh my, you know, he's, he's going to be a TSA nightmare at the airport, right? So fast forward, they did not provide us with timely discharge care for physical therapy, occupational therapy, occupational therapy being incredibly critical in order to learn how to properly transfer a patient. They did a little bit with us in the hospital, told us that we were going to have immediate caregivers in in the house when we got home. But still a week later, we didn't have anyone and we were calling and calling and insurance wasn't getting on the stick and approving. Who knows? So needless to say, he fell again. So he fell again. He ended up um, refracturing the femur and ended up with an elbow um, fracture as well. And in the hospital, he had popped uh, several stitches in his wound and they did not treat it. They sent him home. Yeah, They sent him home. I I couldn't believe it. And we had to, within 10 minutes of getting home from the emergency room, because they didn't properly um, patch up the wound, we had to send him to another hospital to go and get proper wound care. And he went into emergency surgery that next day to reseal the wound. So it's been a nightmare. He's back home. (laughs) It's just that you need an advocate with you every step of the way when you're in the hospital. So a lot going on. We have full-time care now. I decided, heck, you know what? I am not waiting for insurance. I'm just going to, thankfully I can afford it right now, but I wonder about, and I feel bad for those who can't afford it and thinking of expanding the way to my heart to help with emergency discharge care for even our patients that we work with around the world to help with that transition because they try to get them out of the hospital quick, but then what? They don't worry about what happens when they get home and maybe we can help Hey, you're on the board of directors. You prove that, Kay? Yeah, absolutely. Well, coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we're going to get into our discussion about type 2 diabetes. That's enough of our crazy week that's been happening. And we're going to move forward and help you now um, mitigate your risk for amputation. So stay with us.
1: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. We always start every single show talking about are weeks because we work in medical around the world. And so sometimes there's just craziness that happens. And for me this week and also last week was with my dad and that personal experience and trying to get my dad, you know, cared for with his wounds and two ambulance trips in a, in a day because the hospital made it, let him leave without properly dressing his wound. And so it's just been it's like a domino effect, but we have, Dr. Danzinger with Boston Heart Diagnostics, who's here. We have nurse practitioner Kay, who's here, who's with um, our nonprofit, uh, The Way to My Heart. And we have Dr. John Phillips, who is with Ohio Health. He is um, co-host of the show, and he is on call today, so he'll be jumping in and out. I just want to make sure that he's there. He can hear us live. Dr. Phillips, can you hear us?
6: I can, Kimberly. Can you hear me?
2: Yeah, we can hear you.
6: All right. Awesome. Sorry. It's been a little bit of a bumpy start for me. I'm on call and kind of in my car and whatnot. So but I've been listening along. Sounds like a, a pretty good show thus far.
2: Yeah, and Dr. Danziger wanted to weigh in weigh in. As you know, we start every single show with a little bit of uh you know what happened during the week, our personal experiences to share. Uh Dr. Danziger, you want to jump in?
4: Yeah, thanks so much, Kim, and it's great to be back with you and with Dr. Phillips and, and Kay. And I'd like to say that your story breaks my heart. You know, it, it's an example of when things go wrong. And, you know, I've been a doctor for 25 years, and I'll say that my first three years were mainly as an urgent care doctor. So, Oh, really? So, so you know, I've been focused on diabetes and, and disease reversal for, you know, 22 years. But for my first three years, I saw a lot of patients who would come in with urgent Problems. And one of the biggest challenges that we see is when doctors feel rushed and when Mm -hmm. doctors are seeing too many patients and they don't listen as well as they need to sometimes and sometimes patients aren't able to say what they need to say in the first minute and if the conversation goes in the wrong direction because the the doctor didn't listen well or the patient doesn't feel heard or you know felt you know wasn't able to easily articulate what needed to be said right off the bat then things can spiral out of control and there can be you know a domino effect in the wrong direction and so one of the most important things that doctors and healthcare providers can do is take that extra moment to listen and to avoid do, do everything they can to avoid feeling you know too rushed to really listen. And at the same time, there's a lot to do, a lot for patients and their advocates to understand that when healthcare providers feel rushed, then you, you need to um, make sure the lines of communication stay open and just to understand that dynamic. Sometimes you have to say it twice or mm-hmm. sometimes you have to say it in a different way. And, you know, I think all of us in this country feel like the healthcare system has a long way to go to be its best and keeping the lines of communication open is one of the most important things that doctors and patients can do together. So that's my, that's my commentary.
2: I agree. And I know, especially with my dad, that it started with the triage nurse. Triage nurses are becoming more and more important. And if they're rushed, they're not getting the right information to the doctor. For example, with my dad, he just wrote down, he had a pop stitch, but he just took my dad's word for it, didn't examine the patient, nothing more than hook him up to the blood pressure monitor and the um, pulsometer. So there was just, it, it wasn't a proper triage. So he was made last priority and there could have been from the fall, a slow bleed that would take two to three hours to potentially arise. And what ended up happening even worse was that because they told us they did not want to wake up an orthopedic surgeon that night to check his x-ray, which would have ended up um, revealing to them that he should have been sent home in a wheelchair and should have been non-ambulatory. They sent him home, which exacerbated the extensive um, hairline fracture that was already developing. And that was a problem. So, you know, it is critical and we all have to just take a deep breath and I am more apt to being patient if I know that the doctor is going to spend as much time with me as they are with other patients.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So yeah, it was yeah, interesting. I, I want to transition. Yes.
6: So you know, two things. We, we. I'm sorry, I was having a hard time uh, getting on the call, but my quote for the day, um, yeah, is based on what you, on uh, what your uh, situation was, um, and. It's from Helen Keller, and it said, "We could never learn to be brave or patient if there was only joy in the world." So I think that's kind of poignant. Our uh, we have to be patient as physicians and and healthcare providers as well as patients because our healthcare system is stretched to the it's very thin, and um, you know everybody's struggling.
3: I agree. The healthcare is really stretched at the moment. I like I've never seen in my 40 years in this industry. It's just unbelievable.
2: It is. Um, At the second hospital we went to, they had stickers that said, hey, we need more help um, for the safety of ourselves and for the patients. So I appreciated actually the honesty of the staff in the in the hospital. It actually made me even more patient. To say, wow, these people are literally on their feet. They're working twelve and thirteen hour shifts, and you know, they're trying their best. Yes. Um,
6: in, in, um, in our hospital right now, we have beds that are going unused because we don't have staff. Thirty percent of our ER staff, from a nursing standpoint, is filled with travelers, and. These patients are coming to our emergency room and they're being boarded in our emergency room, which the emergency room is for triage and then admission, not admission, etc. And now they're taking care of inpatients. So this is a, this is a critical point here, um, and, and we need people. If anyone's listening that wa- that wants to take up a, a career in healthcare, please do so because we need all the help we can get.
2: Yeah, and I think that even facilities could actually start helping to provide scholarships for young people to encourage them to get and pay for the schooling that they need um, the advanced education to move into the medical world. So that could be very, very helpful. So I know that, you know, we could talk the entire show about this, but we do have Michael Danziger here, Dr. Michael Danziger. And, you know, you're one of those people though, that transitioned out of that urgent care that we need you desperately in the urgent care and the emergency world, but even more so now, I think you're adding great value. So it's kind of like that catch 22, you're adding great value in helping to educate people on chronic illnesses, which is um, just out of control, especially with diabetes, more than 50% of people in the United States thought to have pre-diabetes or diabetes and vascular complications arise from that, which cause even more problems. And you're trying to help kind of cut them off the pass and, and help to improve this situation now.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the reason why I transitioned out of urgent care into preventive medicine is because of the saying, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And the whole healthcare system is overburdened. And a big part of that burden is um, these reversible, preventable chronic diseases like um, heart disease you know, peripheral vascular disease, diabetes, obesity, all of these weight-related medical problems and diet-related medical problems are largely reversible, and so that's why I, you know, have focused my career the last 20-plus years on helping, you know, learning more about prevention and how to reverse disease
2: coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we'll hear how he's doing that. So stay with us. Get your questions ready. We'll be answering them right here on 860 AM, The Answer.
6: Three years ago, my symptoms started with leg pain and leg cramps while walking.
3: Me too, with a tightness in my calves. Well, do you know, my doctor thought that my leg cramps were a side effect of the statin he prescribed me.
5: Well, my doctor just brushed them off as another symptom of old age.
3: Mine thought the pain was
1: radiating from my spine. My doctor blamed my neuropathy on diabetes until I got a wound on my foot that just wouldn't heal.
2: peripheral artery disease if you've been experiencing leg pain leg cramps or neuropathy when walking and your doctor isn't hearing you we are. We are The Way to My Heart, the largest support network for peripheral artery disease patients. And we want to help you get back on your feet again. Visit our website at thewaytomyheart.org or call our Legsaver hotline 415-320-7138. Your life and limb could depend on it.
1: Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy award winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Dr. John Phillips is on call at Ohio Health. I think he's still on the line and will be popping in and out here and there. Dr. Phillips, you still there?
6: I am, Kim. I am.
2: Fantastic. Well, we have Dr. Michael Danzinger, who's here as well, nurse practitioner Kay with the Way to My Heart as well. But we're really focusing this show on type 2 diabetes and how eating can actually mitigate your eating right, could actually mitigate your risk for vascular complications, including uh, peripheral artery disease and ultimately amputation. And the reason we have Dr. Michael Danzinger on, he's with Boston Heart Diagnostics, but he also is the utmost authority, I think, on diabetes reversal. He wrote a program, a very famous program for Tufts University. Um, Dr. Danziger, do you want to talk a little bit about that as well as, you know, what is the mechanism of action by which diabetes actually can lead to vascular complications?
4: Yeah, great. Great questions. Great topic, Kim. Yes, yeah, so I've been with Tufts Medical Center in Boston for the past 22 years. And for over a decade, I've had a program there called the Diabetes Reversal Program. So it's for patients who get their health care at Tufts Medical Center. And the point of it is to avoid the, the vascular complications, the heart attacks and the strokes and the, the peripheral vascular disease associated with diabetes uh, before it happens. So diabetes, um, as people know is associated with high blood sugar levels and high sugar in the blood is very bad for the blood vessels. And it's also bad for the nerves and it's bad for the immunity. So if someone, you know, people need good blood flow to their feet. And Mm -hmm. if your blood sugar is high, it sort of scrapes up the arteries and damages the blood, you know, the, the arteries that carry blood and oxygen to your feet and the rest of your body. And you know, that high sugar can you know almost think of it as as microscopic pieces of glass, you know, Mm -hmm. scraping away at the, the blood. Vessels. And although it's slightly more complicated than that, I think that's a good metaphor to to think of it. It, It's not that, It's, it's a good metaphor, but also it's bad for the nerves. And you need good nerves in your feet because if you can't feel what's going on with your feet, then you can have an injury or a blister or it changes the way you're walking. And that can be bad for your toes and you can get blisters, and those mm-hmm. blisters can get infected, and you can get, you know, poor healing there. And the last thing about diabetes is it's bad for your immunity. And so you, you need to be able to fight bacteria and fungus in your feet and toes, and high blood sugar levels interfere with your own um, white blood cells, and that combination of the decreased immunity... And the nerve damage and the decreased you know, blood flow to the feet is how you set yourself up for you know, ulcers in your, in your feet and for um, you know, all sorts of problems associated with diabetes. And if you can eat right and keep active, it can go a long way to controlling your blood sugar.
2: But it speaks volumes when you're talking about more than 50% of, of- adults in the U.S. alone that are thought to be either pre-diabetic or diabetic. And I know that nurse practitioner Kay has a theory as to why this is the case.
3: Yeah, my theory goes back about 30 years ago when all of a sudden cholesterol came to the fore. Well, 30, 40 years ago and everybody started getting cholesterol testing done. Um, and it was the, it was just the basic cholesterol panel. Um, and all of a sudden in the shops, everything became low fat, but what nobody realized was in order to become low fat, they put extra sugar in it to enhance the taste because they'd removed half the fat, um, and lo and behold, thirty, forty years later, we now have an epidemic or a pandemic of diabetes. What's your thoughts on that one, Dr. Densinger?
4: Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, when you have high blood sugar, it might seem obvious that you can't eat a lot of sugar or it'll make the problem worse. And what's less obvious, though, is that when people eat starch, refined starch, white bread, white rice, you know, et cetera, white pasta, that turns to sugar and adds to the problem. But animal fat is also a problem. And so the, the lethal combination is the combination of animal fat from meat and dairy plus refined sugar and refined starch. All of those are a problem. And you can't just push one down and eat all you want of the other without getting in some sort of a trouble yeah
2: so it's really probably more about balance and we're going to get into your thoughts on reversing diabetes with diet and how you would suggest that that people can easily reduce their risk or mitigate their risk of vascular disease caused by it coming up next right here on the heart of innovation so stay with us Medical Notepad, brought to you by patient advocacy organizations, take a stand against amputation, and the way to my heart.
7: How do you know if a vascular specialist has advanced skills? I'm Dr. Bradley Hill, vascular surgeon with Hill Vascular and Vein Center in Campbell, California, with this week's Medical Notepad. If you have peripheral arterial disease, or PAD, which is plaque buildup in mainly the leg arteries that restricts blood flow, you want to make sure that your vascular specialist has advanced skills. PAD specialists include vascular surgeons like myself, interventional cardiologists, and interventional radiologists. Title doesn't matter as much as skill set. With PAD, you need to ask critical questions that help you better understand the extent to which a physician will exhaust all efforts to prevent amputation. These questions will help you understand if a vascular specialist offers advanced tools and techniques and with a greater success in limb salvage. ask: do you use intravascular ultrasound, known as ivis, for additional imaging for sizing and placing balloons and stents during an angiogram procedure? Do you use multiple approaches during the angiogram? This means if the physician can't get through a blockage by going through the groin area, They have the skill set to approach the blockage from below by accessing an artery in the foot or the calf. Do you treat the arteries below the knee and in the foot using minimally invasive tools and techniques to prevent wounds from developing on my foot? Do you use reduced trauma techniques to decrease the need for placing stents? And if you've exhausted all advanced minimally invasive techniques to open my blocked vessels, Do you have the ability or have a relationship with someone who has the ability to perform bypass surgery, endoterectomy, or hybrid approaches to restoring blood flow? This is critical because these methods can be more durable than some minimally invasive methods for patients with recurrent or extensive blockages. One more advanced skill vascular specialists are starting to adopt is known as deep vein arterialization or DVA, where they reroute flow from an artery in the leg to a vein in the leg or foot. You can ask about their experience in performing a DVA, and it does indicate the doctor is on the cutting edge, but I wouldn't eliminate a physician who doesn't have this skill unless you're facing imminent amputation, and it's medically indicated as the last resort for limb salvage. Of course, along with the aforementioned questions on specific advanced skills, you also want to ask the vascular specialist to share their success rate in saving limbs in cases like yours and how they mitigate risks involved with any procedure they might perform on you. Ultimately, the end goal is to optimize your quality of life and the treatment plan must be tailored specifically for you. With this week's medical notepad, I'm Dr. Bradley Hill vascular surgeon with Hill Vascular and Vein Center in Campbell, California.
2: Medical Notepad is a series for educational and informational purposes only. Advice offered is not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this series without the explicit consent from your own healthcare care team. For more information on peripheral artery disease, go to StandAgainstAmputation.com. And for peripheral artery disease support, go to TheWayToMyHeart.org.
1: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. We're talking about diabetes and how to mitigate your risk of vascular complications. Dr. John Phillips, Say hello. He's
6: on call at Ohio Health in Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Kim. I think this is a fantastic conversation. And and I think before the break, we were hopefully going to touch on Michael's um, kind of cookbook or or, uh, playbook with respect to healthy eating and, and balancing the appropriate protein and levels of fat and carbohydrates. So, Michael, thanks for joining us. And please share your wealth of knowledge with us
4: absolutely happy to do that. So when I meet with a patient, you know, I I listen and I understand their goals and the typical patient will say, "Well, I have type 2 diabetes and it's in the early stages and I don't want it to advance like it did in my, you know, mother or father or in my sibling and they might say, "I know that if I can control my diabetes and maybe even put it into remission, I can really minimize my chances of all the complications. But doctor, how do I eat in order to improve my diabetes? And and I say, okay, now that I understand your goals, um, let's talk about the idea that you could get your diabetes into remission if you lost 25 pounds or 35 pounds or you know, for many patients, there's a certain amount of weight that can get their type 2 diabetes into remission. And I would say about 80% of the people who have type 2 diabetes can have the biological potential to get it into remission by losing, you know, around 15% of their body weight. And so, um, but how how do you eat in order to, to lose weight? And I point out, you know, the concern about sugars, for one thing, that are added to foods. So I'm not so concerned about fruits as I am about all the obvious things like, you know, cookies and candy and, High and desserts syrup. that have added sugar. But mm-hmm. also I point out that the starch that we eat from, you know, all the white starch people eat from bread and pasta and grains turns to sugar. And although it's not sweet, you know, within an hour, most of that is turned into sugar and it raises the sugar levels. But I also point out that animal fat from meat and dairy is a problem. And so we really focus on, you know, a broad range of fruits and vegetables and lean proteins, especially, you know, vegetarian proteins from beans and nuts, but also fish and shellfish, lean poultry, you know, chicken breast, turkey breast and lean red meat. And there's no one best diet for diabetes type one or type two, and it needs to be individualized and it needs to account for an individual's food preferences. Some people don't want a lot of red meat or even poultry, or some people want to be vegetarian. Others really like meat and want to have more protein. And so we take that into a consideration, and, and so there's no one best eating strategy. But almost all of my patients are eating a wide, you know, salads every day, you know, a couple pieces of fruit, at least one piece of fruit, sometimes two. Um, And, you know, I encourage them to eat fish or shellfish, you know, three or more times a week if they're up for that and lots of poultry breast. And there's, you know, a hundred different ways to make chicken interesting using, you know, different recipes. And so that's the mainstay. Of shellfish,
2: really quick, is, is that okay when it comes to cholesterol? Because if you look at the numbers, it looks like it's high cholesterol. And does that translate into cholesterol in your body, or is that okay cholesterol?
4: Yeah, that's okay. So, shellfish is hardly ever really a problem for people, in my view. So, there is some cholesterol <laughs> in shellfish, like shrimp, for example, but shellfish has, you know, and fish in general, um, have so many good health properties mm-hmm. that it's totally worth it. And so I never felt like I was getting anywhere um, towards someone's health goals by limiting their shellfish intake. So in the, the and so you know a lot of people you know like fish and and shellfish, and many people are happy to eat it three times a week. All they need is you know a healthcare provider to say you know that's that's. You know, gonna serve you well. And so, with my patients, I meet with them frequently so I can make sure that the scale is moving, you know, favorably. And the more they lower their body weight and reduce excess body fat, the more they're going to reduce their blood sugar and their hemoglobin A1C, which measures the average blood sugar. And that's how they minimize their risk of complications of diabetes. About a third of my patients get their diabetes into remission, meaning the blood sugar is normal or nearly normal without diabetes medications.
2: And so when it comes to, you have the keto diet, the Mediterranean diet, the uh, vegetarian from... Uh, Dean Ornish or Estelin, uh, you know, they have books out on reversing cardiovascular disease. And as part of that, it's reversing diabetes. I mean, how do you make the choice as a patient as to which diet should it be a diet? Or should it just be, let's look at the foods, let's find the healthier substitutes. And do you find it's more successful for them them to stay in their same habits, but just create a more balanced diet, focus on portions and focus on key substitutions?
4: Yeah, so- There's, the you know, all of those eating strategies, which I like to call them, have, you know, strengths and drawbacks. And, you know, keto has strengths and drawbacks, Mediterranean has strengths and drawbacks, the low-fat Ornish approach has strengths and drawbacks, and it's helpful, you know, for the matchmaker, that would be me, you know, or the healthcare provider who's you know in preventive medicine, or the diabetes specialist. So so they they can think of themselves as a dietary matchmaker. And for some patients, they really have a problem with you know high levels of LDL bad cholesterol. And in that case, the animal fat is a big problem. Other people clearly, you know, are addicted to carbs, and every night they're, you know, they're, they're, eat, you know, they, 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 in moments of weakness, they're eating chips and, and, you know, other starchy, you know, snacks, and they know that it's a problem. And sugar is really addictive. And so for those people, you really need to focus on, you know, that root of the problem. And so it depends a lot on not only the person's medical situation, but you know, are they sensitive to the fatty foods? or Are they sensitive to the starchy and sugary foods? But it has a lot to do with their, their personality. And, you know, you know, you take advantage of the, the healthy foods that they do like.
2: It's really interesting. You talk about the starches and, and the um, the rice and the all that kind of stuff and the breads, uh, because not a lot of um, people do. What are some replacements? for those that you've found successful with your patients? Those are who are all about the carbs, and you have about 20 seconds.
4: (laughs) Okay, well, take white rice as an example. One way to go is just to switch to brown rice and eat a high-fiber version of that. But I think an even better way to go is with cauliflower rice, which is a vegetable in the shape of a rice. (laughs) And and so, you know, that has always been my approach. I would rather find vegetables that people like as a replacement for those starchy foods so another one is the zucchini shaped the noodles made of zucchini Love rather this. than the pasta and then you can put a sauce on it so that's been my best approach
2: fantastic so we'll come up right here on the heart of innovation find out the critical questions to ask your doctor to determine what diet or what approach is right for you so stay with us
1: Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips.
2: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. We've been talking about diabetes and how to reduce your risk if you do have type 2 diabetes of getting a vascular disease that could ultimately lead to heart attack, stroke, or amputation. Dr. John Phillips is on call. He's at Ohio Health in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, Any thoughts before we wrap up here with some critical questions to ask the doctor? Dr. Phillips? Yeah,
6: yeah. I mean, for me, I try to keep it simple with my patients because I'm seeing folks kind of at the tail end with their disease process in fact uh this morning i just did a a, a acute heart attack in someone with diabetes who didn't really know she had diabetes and so mike i again i say try the mediterranean diet and eat less and exercise more i mean it's simple but it's very difficult to execute
2: yeah and i think do you find that as people are are getting older it's tough to break those habits so it's you know, to re- to reverse it, it's God. You got to really do it step by step.
6: Well, you, you, you want to? I mean, I would say of my patients, probably two thirds of them start exercising and and change their eating habits. I tell them to get smaller plates, uh, so the portions are you know they it look[s] bigger because your plate is smaller. Um, but at the end of the day, you have to decide if you want to make those changes. We can help people, but as the adage is, you lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink.
2: At a certain point, Dr. Danzinger, do you ever just say, you know what, c'est la vie, they're in advanced stages, let them eat what they want, or does the moment you make those changes start making a difference right away, or is it like with my dad, it took really almost a couple years to see the plaque progression slow down?
4: Well, I love living in a free world where we all have a choice. No one's obligated to eat healthily, or, or you know, it, it, um, we live in a you know a world that I call an obesogenic environment. And there's all sorts of external forces that sort of encourage us or push us in the direction of over overeating and not getting enough exercise. That's a whole nother show and a whole whole other topic. And you know, people know that you know they're they're not you know, their eating's not balanced and, you know, willpower goes a certain, you know, willpower only goes so far and, you know, we've all, we, we all, you know, have, have you know, we, we could, everyone's on a journey and everyone has the opportunity to do a better job, you know, with their eating and exercise or a worse job with their eating and exercise. Some people who, you know, throw in the towel because they're sick and they feel like, you know, I if I only have a year or two to live, I'm going to enjoy myself and and I can see why many people feel that way. At the same time though, you know, the sicker you are, the more important healthy eating and physical activity is. And yeah. so so the these lifestyle changes have the have the potential to do the most good the sicker you are and yeah. so you know for example uh, you know a patient you know with with cancer who's who's ill and and wants to to make the most out of you know their remaining time actually has the the you know is an example of someone who has a lot to gain by you know, healthy eating and staying active, it's good for your brain chemicals and it's good for your immunity and it's good for everything. And so for better or for worse, there's no time when we actually are, are entirely free from the scenario where, you know, the, the lifestyle choices make a difference. They, they make a difference as children like in middle age and through all the all the stages of life. It's a great question
2: and we have about a minute left less than a minute about 30 seconds uh oh what are some of the critical questions that patients should be asking their their doctors or their dietitians definitely get a referral to a dietitian what are the questions they ask to determine what is the best approach for them
4: yeah if if you're a patient and you have a you know number one is you need a good you, you need a healthcare provider that and you believe in them and you want to work with them and, and sometimes that's the most important thing is to you know engage with your healthcare provider you need the right person number 2 is you need to be there more often and you know i meet with my patients every 1 to 2 weeks oh, that's wow. optimal and almost nobody is meeting with their doctor on a monthly basis i i meet with my own doctor monthly so 10 I'm on a journey, and so those, the, that's how how you really get it done. You know, it's an ongoing process having your healthcare provider as a coach and so they might not be available to meet with you monthly but every three months or every two months as, as often as you can the better and then you can have nice relaxed conversations and and you can work together as a team and that's the way it needs to be. So, Thank you so much
2: Dr. Danzinger. we really appreciate you. The heart of innovation go there for more on all of these topics.
1: Heart attacks and strokes and nearly two 200,000 amputations annually. For more information regarding topics you've heard discussed on today's program, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org.